Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Well, it's finally happened. I've been teasing it for weeks and weeks and weeks, and now it's here. Counterpunch Plus has launched. That is our brand new subscriber section. Everything that you used to get in the print magazine is now available in Counterpunch Plus as well as additional content, including articles, including uh, more content, interviews, others, potentially more podcasts from me in the future. Go to Counterpunch Plus right now. It is free and available to everybody for a limited time. Get a sense of what our new subscriber section is going to look like. A very, very small monthly amount is going to give you access to all of that content. And hey, Looky here, if you look in Counterpunch Plus, you'll find a brand new exclusive piece from yours truly, all about the Obama administration's plot against Libya. So that and a whole lot more in Counterpunch Plus. Please do consider getting a subscription to Counterpunch. You can also get a t-shirt, support Counterpunch Radio, help keep the lights on, help keep this podcast going. Uh, You can also support me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Drates. a lot more content there and a lot more to tell you about today, including my guest on the line, somebody whose work I highly respect, who does so much in terms of bringing the perspectives that we really need to hear from. Maximilian Alvarez is with me today. Maximilian is an essayist. He's a contributor to many different publications. His work has been in The Baffler, The New Republic, The Nation, In These Times, many other publications. He's also a podcaster and the host of an excellent podcast that you must put into your rotation, Working People the Working People podcast. Do make it a regular listen for you. The website, activeforgetting.com. Follow Maximilian on Twitter at Maximilian underscore ALV and the the podcast at Working Pod on Twitter. Maximilian, welcome to Counterpunch. Thanks, brother. Really, really appreciate it. I'm honored. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for the work you've been doing. And I guess let's just jump right into our conversation here. Your show, your podcast, must, much of your work is centered around working people. It's the name of your podcast. It's the focus. Talk to me a little bit about working people here in September 2020. We're now many months into a pandemic. Working people are, of course, on the cutting edge, on the front line of the pandemic. You've been talking to a bunch of them, Maximilian. What are they saying? What are the common threads you're hearing? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's wild, man, you know, because like, you know, I started this show working people a few years back in a kind of, you know, studs Turkle esque vein to really, you know, talk to like fellow workers, uh, go, you know, do deep dive conversations where, you know, we really talk about them and their lives and their stories and their family histories. Right. The whole the whole point was, you know, to kind of rehumanize ourselves and our fellow workers since we live in such, you know, kind of constant alienation in, you know, late stage capitalism, whatever you want to call it. The fact of the matter is that, you know, like our basic humanity um, is the thing that, you know, is most often forgotten or even forcibly erased from the ways that we interact with each other, from the ways that we get news about each other and, you know, the ways that we, you know, commerce in this country, right? We treat people as commodities, as name tags, as job titles, as services uh, to be bartered and sold, not as people with complex lives and, you know, wants and dreams and 
memories and families and all that stuff. And, you know, that's still very much the guiding aim of this show. But, you know, obviously that's taken, um, that mission has kind of taken a new light in the age of COVID-19, right? Now I, I kind of feel um, more than perhaps I ever have this sort of documentary impulse uh, or need to to kind of provide some sort of, you know, oral history of the present so that if and when we have the chance to kind of look back at this moment, you know, we can hear through the voices of the people who are actually living through this, how things have changed and how it has, you know, impacted them personally. And, you know, that's, you know, I guess like, you know, the another point of the show is that, you know, like no... No two workers' stories are alike, right? You know, everyone has their own story and everyone's story deserves to be heard. And, you know, I think that um, as kind of we've gone further and further into this kind of brave new world of the pandemic, you know, those stories, um, you know, have varied depending on the type of industry people are working in type of work that they do, um, where in the country they live, um, what identity positions they occupy, right? Um, and, you know, we even did a, a kind of big two-part episode um, earlier in the season, uh, last season, season three, where, uh, you know, I actually kind of edited and compiled, I think, close to six hours of testimonies from workers, you know, like in the midst of, of the kind of first wave of the pandemic. And that included, you know, teachers, sex workers, um, bus drivers, uh, manufacturers, uh, unhoused folks, uh, incarcerated folks, um, service industry workers, retail workers, right? It was just, a, I think, a really... Um, stunning collection if i if i say so myself of of experiences and voices and and stories and you know i gotta tell you that was one of the hardest i think that was one of the hardest episodes i've ever kind of had to uh put together and i wasn't even in it right you know i wasn't interviewing anyone i was really just offering the show as a platform and people sent in their clips and you know i edited them and put them up uh on the on the feed um but you know, I think that if there are some, I, I would highly encourage folks to kind of check that out just, uh, you know, because workers can tell you better than I can, you know, like what they're going through. But, you know, I think that, you know, one of, if there are kind of takeaways, they're probably takeaways that your listeners are, are familiar with or experiencing themselves, right? Which is that just that it's a really profound thing to go through. Um, to realize uh, all at once and in such kind of stark uh, terms how little your life means to to this world, right? How little your life means to your employer, to the politicians that, um, you know, are elected to ostensibly serve you and support you, right? I think that 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 has kind of been the overarching feeling from a lot of the folks that I've talked to is just... I don't know if disbelief is the right word, but maybe shock that like, you know, we always kind of knew that, that, you know, these people don't give a shit about us, but I think it was really, it's been really hard for a lot of us just to kind of 
see in real time, uh, you know, by the decisions that um, people in power have been making to, you know, quote unquote, deal with this pandemic, just how little, you know, like our lives and families and health and safety factor into those decisions. Right. And so I think that the stories that come through on the show um, or, you know, just in conversations that I have with folks off the show, right, is just there, there's a big kind of, I think, psychological and emotional toll that comes with, you know, realizing that that you mean so little um, to this world in the eyes of the people in power. And again, that's something that I think working people kind of know intimately just in, you know, before the pandemic, being treated like crap, being paid like crap, um, being offered so little um, recourse uh, if things go wrong, if they lose their job, if they get sick, right? There, there are millions of different ways that this system reminds you that to it, you are nothing but a cockroach uh, at worst. And at best, you are nothing but some coins in, in pockets to be shaken out, you know, as they, they hold you by the ankles. But again, I think that, that we are able to, before the pandemic, we were able to kind of just numb ourselves to that and, you know, focus on the task at hand, focus on getting by, trying to squeeze whatever dignity and joy and, and respect that we could out of this hard scrabble life. But uh, once the pandemic hit, you know, I think it was just a really, it was a really high dose of inhumanity that people were experiencing. And I think that, you know, we're going to be dealing with those effects for a long time, you know, because it's it's not an easy thing to deal with. It's not an easy thing for anyone politically to kind of repair uh, those sort that sort of broken trust, that sort of lost hope, that sort of self, you know, um, degradation that people feel when they start to believe that perhaps they are um, as worthless as the system tells them they are. And, you know, on the other side of that, um, I, I just really wanted to kind of highlight that sort of emotional and psychological aspect because I feel like it's perhaps a bit understudied or underacknowledged. But, you know, on the other side, on the kind of more concrete side, you know, we've seen just how little um, kind of care and attention and respect working people have gotten during this pandemic um, based on, you know, kind of the the crappy um, uh, plans that have been made um, to protect workers on the job, um, the, you know, just paltry um, sustenance that the government has provided to people who should uh, have been able to stay home with their families um, and not risk uh, getting sick, especially in the early days of this pandemic when we could have potentially contained a lot of this um, in the richest country in, in the world. You know, we, we absolutely had the resources to um, kind of pay uh, working people to stay home and, and not have to kind of put themselves in danger and also not put the essential workers who did have to go out in more danger by um, exposing them to other people who have to go to work but shouldn't have to, um, but are going to work just because they still have to pay rent, which is absurd. Again, there's, you know, it's kind of like, where do I even start? But I think, you know, really to this is a long winding way of answering your question, right? And this is by no means a new take, you know, but I think that that more than anything, 
um, this pandemic has has shown the deep rot within our political economy, within our society, um, because the moment that that those things got pressure tested by, you know, like a a world changing event like the pandemic, uh, they buckled. Right. You know, they, they had nothing they had nothing to prov- provide for working people. And that's because the systems that are supposed to protect working people, the protocols and uh, legal protections and everything that are supposed to um, protect working people, right? Those have been chipped away at and eroded over decades. And now there's just no, there's nowhere to fall back on. There's just, there's just millions and millions of people falling and there's no net to catch them. And that's kind of where we are right now. Like I, you know, just to make one more point about this, like, I think another thing I really want people to understand, right, is like there's also a, there's obviously a very big disparity uh, when it comes to, um, you know, how people are faring in this. Like, obviously, um, people in professions that have been able to uh, move to remote operations have been significantly less impacted, at least financially, than workers in industries that can't be done remotely. Right. And that's not to say that people who are working remotely aren't also kind of dealing with a lot of other uh, major challenges, some of which I know you you know very intimately. Right. Like trying to kind of hand, deal with kids, um, you know, trying to do your work during the day. I mean, like there's there's a lot, um, you know, that that people everywhere are dealing with. But, you know, for for so many folks whose jobs can't go remote, uh, for so many folks, um, you know, who who don't have, you know, like even the opportunity of seeking unemployment, whether they be sex workers or undocumented workers or workers, you know, like who fall through any number of legal loopholes uh, of, you know, of which our system is absolutely riddled. Um, you know, there there is a. There is a massive and quiet uh, death going on, right? I know, like, anywhere you are where you're listening to this, you know, if if it's not you yourself, you are surrounded by people who are in deep pain and deep trouble and who don't know what they're going to do, right? People who are on, you know, the phone with their city governments on hold for eight hours only to be hung up on, you know, at the end of it, um, people who are who who have nowhere to turn, right? And people who have realized that they're just, you know, at best a statistic to this system, and for as for as much as the system is concerned, their only recourse is to go away, is to die, or is to be pushed out of their apartments and dealt with by, you know, the the police. Right. There is just so much suffering going on. And that suffering, I feel, has been actively uh, quieted over these past months um, so that we can maintain some sort of fiction of normalcy. Um, and, and that fiction directly appeals to people who are able to kind of weather this storm at the expense of so many who aren't. 
There's something to be said for the pandemic really removing the mask that has been on American capitalism for so long. And in one sense, you, as you noted in your comments there, that it has revealed this political rot that we've all known is there, but has sort of exposed it to the world in, in all its uh, putrid form. At the same time, you know, we, we can kind of say, well, you know, this has revealed this political rot that, uh, you know, that, that we all knew was there. But it's also a reflection of the brutal capitalism that really is the bedrock of what it means to be American and what it means to be in America. There is this sort of barbaric sort of stripped down version of capitalism, I think, that we're beginning to see here, a kind of capitalism that we really haven't seen for several generations, as we've seen, you know, after the Depression and all of the programs that were put in place and so forth, this sort of unvarnished American capitalism. I think that is something that's worthy of discussion. I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, this is this is kind of what I mean when I say that there there's kind of like a an official narrative about what's going on and then there's just you know underneath that there's just a, an endless well of suffering and doubt and and need that we are not attending to right and it comes through in the ways that we talk about you know how we're going to make it through this and what the world is going to look like after this pandemic Right. Because if you if you Google, right, like the future of work or work after covid, most of the top uh, articles that you're going to get on, you know, Google search algorithm are from places like McKinsey are from, you know, primarily right wing think tanks or business friendly think tanks that are all focused on like how, you know, businesses can adjust to uh, a largely remote uh, workforce, right? And they're talking about kind of the opportunities that can come with not having the overhead of an office building, uh, relocating employees, yada, yada, yada. But again, that's so that's kind of like one narrative about how, quote unquote, business can continue after this. Um, what is absent from those types of stories is like, well, what about the people who clean those offices, right? You know, like, what about all the other forms of labor that have kind of traditionally made, um, you know, the these forms of work that are now going remote possible, right? Again, there's just there's just no real answer there. There's just an assumption that like, uh, those people will go somewhere, something will happen to them, right? It's like the it's like that old South Park, uh, underpants gnome thing right where like the underpants gnomes no one knows how they turn the underpants that they steal into profit but when they try to explain it they say like step one you know we collect the underpants step two there's a big question mark and then step three is profit right it's like that's i mean like it's so ridiculous but like that is that is more or less the way that we are uh kind of approaching this kind of monumental catastrophe that's been laid at our feet Right. Is just where are all these people going to go? What are they going to do? How are they going to live? And, you know, an, I guess another aspect to a lot of these kind of future of work um, or future of the workforce kind of um, articles and primers that I've been reading, another kind of really uh, eerie facet to them is that they highlight a lot of the ways that like this pandemic, you know, like in the grand old tradition of capitalist innovation, right, is catalyzing, um, you know, uh, is catalyzing ways for businesses to kind of adapt to this 
quote unquote new normal by, you know, pushing for more automation, um, pushing for cleaning robots to replace human um, janitorial staff, uh, you know, staff even in manufacturing uh, or more staff in manufacturing, right? Like it, it kind of gives light points to what you were just saying, right? Is like, you know, this, this really all of it, it can be a lot to take in, but I think like what everyone in their core kind of understands, right. Is like this, this one event, if we needed that one event, there are many other lessons that many other opportunities we had to learn this lesson, but this pandemic is as good a lesson as I think we, we can ever get that perhaps a society and a political economy built entirely around um, the, not only the hunt for profit, but the need for profit, the need for growth is not such a good idea, right? Because if any, like, you know, I think that, that the capitalist narrative is always kind of pushing toward unlike the positive side of that, right? Is like, if you don't, if you don't innovate, if you don't grow, if you don't build, you know, your, your, uh, business and so your product, right? You die, that's survival of the fittest. And that ensures that the best businesses rise to the top, yada, yada, yada. Right. But, you know, again, we have here there, there we had, you know, anyone who listens to your show knows the problems with that kind of narrative in general. But like if we take the the pandemic and, you know, its relationship to capitalism as our as our kind of jumping off point here. Right. We see that it's like, well, no, like this is this, you know, this doesn't have to do with any sort of like internal market dynamics that, um, you know, correlate to like this kind of Darwinian bullshit of survival of the fittest. Like this is like a major kind of act action, you know, that has, you know, put so many biz um, small businesses out of business permanently that has put so many people out of work, possibly permanently that has, you know, just really left so many people with so few resources to kind of maintain just their bare survival because, you know, that survival was always premised on their participation in a profit seeking system that suddenly does not have kind of its own um, mechanisms for generating that profit. And so instead of a kind of deep reckoning with the flaws of that system, right, instead of having kind of a reckoning wherein we realize that, you know, this this system was already not providing what the massive amounts of working people actually need to live the joyful, comfortable, dignified lives that they and everybody deserves, right? That it was already benefiting, you know, the super wealthy at the rest of our expense. But at a time like this, when we most need some sort of, um, you know, floor beneath which no human being can fall and this kind of assurance that people's healthcare will be taken care of, that they will have a roof over their heads, that they will be able to eat, you know, during a pandemic when it's not their goddamn fault that they can't go out and work for that sustenance. You know, there's, there's, instead of doing that, instead of having that reckoning, we are still trying to force our way through to find ways to kind of keep that those profits going right and by and one of the ways that you know we're apparently planning to do that is to just um kind of continue the trend that we've been on for a long time which is to um 
you know, get rid of the humans, right? You know, like get rid, get rid of as much of uh, not only humanity, but actual human beings from this kind of functioning of capitalism. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that really speaks to, you know, kind of just like how uh, murderous and dystopian this entire system is. Because I think, and I think that, you know, in the grand tradition of like organized labor, right, this poses a really significant question for all of us, right? Because, you know, the labor movement, right, has kind of always been premised on this, this, you know, idea that uh, the bosses need us more than we need them, right? You know, that, and that together um, we have strength in numbers, we have it within our power to bring this system to a halt. Uh, you know, as Big Bill Haywood said, you know, all we have to do is put our hands in our pockets and this system comes to a screeching halt. And capitalism has learned from those past, you know, instances where workers made that clear, right? Capitalism, you know, is works to um, perpetuate itself at any cost, at any human cost. And so, you know, one of the reasons that, you know, I'm, I, I guess I'm especially fearful about this moment Right. Is that, um, you know, I am I am very, very hopeful, you know, when I look at kind of the worker actions that have taken place uh, throughout the pandemic. And I'm, I'm very hopeful about the fact that workers have been realizing that, you know, if the government is not going to help us, if our you know employers are not going to help us, we need to be the ones to, to look out for each other. And we need, you know, like uh, to band together. And, and I think interest in and approval of unions is as an is at an all-time high but at the same time um there are more and more areas of this economy in which um you know the powers that be are realizing that that they don't need us right or that they can try they're going to try to get by without us because it's not just our productive labor that they are depending on Right. They have found ways to monetize our very lives, our health care, right, our debt. Right. They have financialized like every aspect of uh, our daily lives, whether it's our houses, right? whether it's the, the power grid, like every everything that human beings need to live has been swept up in this kind of um, vampiric hunt to profitize everything for a small number of people. Uh, instead of, you know, just providing the kind of necessities that human beings need to live in this on this planet. And so, you know, by, you know, by all measures, you know, the, the direction that we're heading in is one in which, um, you know, like our productive labor has perhaps being been replaced or is perhaps being replaced by, you know, whatever sorts of um, capital can be squeezed from us. Um, and then we could be tossed aside like like empty husks. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing now, right? The, the, the plan for a great economic regeneration or a plan to weather this storm is a plan, um, you know, at least all the plans that I've seen that relies on um, a lot of dead bodies, right? Or a lot of misplaced people without any plan whatsoever for um, providing for them, right? That's not, that's not a system that we can abide. And all of those bodies 
they would be victims in what I would call a class war. The class war really has been brought to a culmination here, I think, with the pandemic. This is a class war that we have seen being played out over decades, the entire neoliberal period that we refer to since the 1970s is really one of an extended class war, war against organized labor, war against the working class, diminution of wages, stagnation, etc. all of those trends that we all know and uh, have understood for a long time. And it seems that we've now kind of reached a sort of point of culmination or really maybe the, the purest distillation of neoliberal class war here in the COVID era. Um, so we see under these conditions of pandemic, this, this gap between rich and poor really becoming an ever-growing chasm and we see this everywhere we see it with education right those with those with means those who are affluent have one kind of education now those who don't have another kind we see that with service workers versus office workers we see it with homeowners versus renters the dividing lines of our economic and social life are becoming ever more stark so i just want to get your comment on that before we head into a break on the kind of class war that we're witnessing now and the intent Density with which it's being waged. Yeah, man, that's a that's a great question. It's a big one, um, you know, because I guess to like put a fine point on everything that I was rambling about before, right? You know, again, I think that that everything that I'm saying is is stuff that people kind of already inherently know. You know, especially a lot of the workers that I talk to, right? Is like you know, like one of the things I'm always telling people. Um, you know, who, when I, when I go on other shows or when people ask me about the podcast is I'm like, look, work, workers, workers aren't fucking dumb. Right. I mean, like people know when they're being screwed over, they know when something's not right. And, you know, you, you, you don't have to be all that smart to realize that there's something fundamentally wrong here when throughout the summer, you know, um, unemployment numbers have been high and even those unemployment numbers, uh, do not reflect kind of the real kind of severe damage that has been done um, to people who have been furloughed, to people who have had their hours uh, significantly cut, to people who have, you know, been pushed out of the job market almost entirely, uh, if not entirely, right? The picture, the picture is very, is very, very bleak. But at the same time, you know, like what have we been hearing um not only through the pandemic, but even this time last year, we were talking about how great the quote unquote economy was, right? You know, because of what the stock market looked like, right? And so I think this is this is kind of what I mean when I say that, um, you know, capital has found ways to perpetuate itself and to grow that kind of voracious hunt for profits um, at all of our expense. Um, even, you know, like while the rest of us, uh, or because the rest of us are living in so much misery, right? Where people, people ask me all the time, they're like, where the hell's that money coming from? Um, and I was like, it's coming from you, you know, like, but you know, in many different ways that you actually kind of don't see, right. <laughs> you know, because we've just, we've gotten so used to, uh, you know, whether it's using credit cards, like whether it's, you know, the ways that we finance our houses and cars and college education or what have you, right? There, there's so many ways that um, our souls are, you know, more or less forcibly sold off to this kind of, um, you know, 
this this kind of great um you know gambling hall in the sky where you know wall street douchebags are kind of um trading these financial instruments and and kind of preying upon all the kind of functions and um commercial and otherwise that we kind of live with in our day-to-day lives and just suck all the nutrients out of that um and leave less and less for us right the the state of this the the scale of this class war as you said like is is total i guess is how i would put it right this is this is a a totalizing war that spans the globe um it is a totalizing war that is coming at the expense of the planet that we all share as you and i are recording this my home state is burning um you know, you know, growing up in California, like there are fires, you know, there's the fire season. We know that there are going to be fires, but I've watched the, those fires get worse and worse over every year since I've been gone. Right. And every year it gets harder and harder to watch. And it also gets harder and harder to watch, um, you know, the people in power who we are trusting to kind of do something about this um, constantly wag their finger and say that it's not feasible. Right. You know, like this is that disconnect has just gotten so exaggerated that, you know, I I don't think it's any um, kind of shock that people are looking to organize labor, that, you know, millennials and Generation Z are more politically radical. Right. Than than uh, the, the generations that came before them. Right. Because that's what happens when you have people living in a world that treats them like shit. And that leaves so few opportunities for them to actually, you know, express their freedom and live their lives, um, not constantly worrying about, you know, how they're going to pay rent. Um, And, you know, I think that if anything, what we have seen, you know, throughout this pandemic is just it's going to it's going to take a while, I think, to realize the, the true scope of the devastation that is happening around us right now. Right. But I mean, you know, just, just one example among many, which I think a lot of people have been seeing, um, with their own eyes, whether it's on social media or the news or what have you, right. Is because of the, this kind of entire house of cards, uh, economy that we have that is entirely organized around, um, you know, the principle of profit or perish, Right. Once the pandemic hit and once it was clear that, um, you know, the government was not going to kind of step in and provide the kind of aid that people needed, or if it was, it was only going to do it very selectively. Um, What we have seen in the process or what the what the outcome has been has just been a truly monumental loss in small businesses and a truly monumental gain um, for the corporations that already like had a tremendous amount of power right you know the amazon is the most you know kind of pointed to example but it's a it's a good example right because it shows how just like you know all of that like i said it's like all of that all of those nutrients all everything that we kind of need to live the way that we used to right all of that has been monetized in some way all of that has been like sucked out of us uh and sucked upwards to the power brokers of our world 
And, you know, when this is all over, you know, whatever that, whatever, however you interpret that, right. We're going to be, we're going to be in, in a, a new world. We're going to be left in a, in a much more accelerated version of the, the world that class war um, from the 1% had already shaped uh, before the pandemic. And it's going to be, it's going to be bleak, man. And like I said, like, you know, if there, if there is a source of hope, I think it is that historically, right, not just in the United States, but all around the world, right? If you have this many people um, who are this disaffected, who are this downtrodden, who are this despised by the people who are supposed to be uh, protecting them or taking care of them or ensuring that society is organized in a way um, that respects, you know, that they are human beings who deserve to live, something's going to happen, right? People, people will bend, but they will not break entirely. People will fight back. Um, and I think we started to see, you know, like a tremendous flash of that with the kind of protests this summer, you know, against, um, kind of the racist police state in this country. I think that, I think that you're absolutely right. Let's take a quick break. I, cause I want to pick up on the other side of the break with that point and finishing up on class war, talking about the black lives matter movement, how that dovetails with some of these other issues we've been talking about and what it means to be a worker in the 21st century. So, uh, stick with us a whole lot more to talk about with Maximilian Alvarez. You're listening to counterpunch radio. Enjoy the music. We'll be right back. Life is a debt. Someday be paid. Born when we were born, left us helpless and self obsessed. Last night on earth, well, don't pick up that pen. We're so ill equipped to deal with all the pressure. Back here on Counterpunch Radio, chatting with Maximilian Alvarez. Again, the podcast, Working People, get it wherever you get your podcasts. Follow him on Twitter at Maximilian underscore ALV. Um, very highly recommended follow on Twitter. So um, before the break, we were talking a little bit about 
class war, the various manifestations of class war uh, as it, you know, sort of against the backdrop of this pandemic. And you were talking a little bit about labor unions, about organized labor and about, I, I don't know if we could call it a resurgence necessarily, but certainly a warming of general attitudes toward labor. But that, of course, raises the question of the material reality of organized labor. I mean, at a time when the unions really seem to be needed more than ever, we still, looking by the numbers, have a record low unionization, certainly both in the public and in the private sector, especially in the private sector. At the same time, um, it's not just that union membership is low. The unions have in many ways failed to respond to key issues, key needs of workers, oftentimes uh, being unwilling to go to bat for some of the issues that are most critical to workers across the board. So the question that I'm going to eventually get to here probably is uh, what about organized labor in this moment? Because the monumental scale of this crisis does seem to beg for an institutionalized kind of response. And for working people, the only institutions that we really have capable of mounting that kind of response are trade unions, organized labor. So where is it? Where is it coming from? Is it coming at all? I think, I mean, it is, um, but, you know, like kind of what we were talking about in the first segment, right, it depends on where you're looking, right? And it depends on the industry. It depends on what part of the country you're in. Uh, and a lot of it depends on kind of the the uh, individual makeup of this or that union, right? I know there was a great uh, article in the American Prospect, um, you know, about Local 6 in New York, which represents a lot of restaurant workers, a lot of hotel workers. Right? And it talked about like kind of like how their long term contract negotiating strategy has really helped them in the pandemic. So like that's like, you know, kind of one example of unions that, um, you know, people are very happy with. Um, you know, I know that um, kind of Sarah Nelson with the flight attendants um, union has kind of been, you know, doing everything that she can to assure government assistance for the airline industry um, and for that money to kind of go uh, to workers and for workers to have a say in that kind of process. But, you know, like I said, like there's still there's there's still like, you know, plenty of really kind of disappointing uh, examples. You know, I know that there was a lot of disappointment just this very month with kind of teachers in New York and the UFT. Um, Again, it, it I think that that, you know, there, there are a lot of um, kind of nuances that make it hard to to generalize about this moment. But, you know, I do think that, um, you know, you are seeing a lot of internal battles, right, you know, within these unions and within you know segments of the workforce that that are not unionized. Right. You are seeing kind of a greater push for more militant action from the rank and file. Um, definitely uh, those on the younger side, but not exclusively. Right. You know, one episode that I did during, you know, the, the pandemic was I interviewed um, this this woman, Jamie Belfler, um, who is with the machinists and she is a worker at the um, Bath Ironworks shipbuilding yard in Maine. And when I interviewed her, they they were on strike, 
right? And, you know, like they they were not like even primarily fighting for like, say, wage increases, but they were fighting against kind of the company's attempts to um, kind of, uh, you know, wreck the sort of like seniority um, kind of provisions that, that work within the shipyard. Um, they were trying to kind of um, make it easier for the company to continue a process that it's been that it's that's been going on for a while where they bring in more non-unionized subcontractors. Um, and, you know, they were on strike for, I think, like two months, actually, um, during the pandemic. Right. And, you know, they ended up with a good contract. Right. They they stuck together. They um, really tried to put the public pressure on. You saw a lot of that energy coming from the younger workers um, who understood, like, you know, what they would be losing. Right. If they let um, the company kind of uh, get rid of everything that it wanted to get rid of. Right. And and. So I think that, you know, again, there are there are a lot of um, kind of stories like that that I think really give me hope for, um, you know, organized labor in general, but also kind of just the general like political consciousness of working people. Because, I mean, you know, when like I guess it's 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 easy to lose sight of like what the world was like when we were growing up. But like, I mean, I grew up conservative. So like, I guess like I was even I was probably even worse. But like you know, the unions were not a, a, a like popular topic in, in at all, uh, where I grew up. And, um, you know, like just the fact that now that approval for unions is at its highest point in like 40 years, like that tells you something that there is something going on. And, you know, I think that, you know, we can't, but we can't be naive to your question and to the point that I think you were making, Right. It's like we can't be naive about kind of the obstacles that we are facing or that have been put in our way. Um, obstacles that were and a lot of times we only realize when we're trying to unionize. Right. Or when um, we're, we want to go on strike. Right. And, you know, like the the Trump National Labor Relations Board has just been a battering ram hammering away at worker protections, you know, throughout the time that he's been in office. Right. And I mean, just this summer, I think the NLRB voted to basically strip protections for shop stewards and for um, kind of designated um, kind of uh, bargaining members. Um, basically, if I mean, I can I can send you an article about it, but like, you know, what they've essentially kind of done is try to kind of further kneecap um, kind of union shop stewards um, and saying that, like, they can't be, quote unquote, hostile during contract negotiations, which could mean just like swearing at the bosses when they're trying to screw over the, the union during negotiations like that can now be grounds for like dismissal. Like that's just one example among so many others of like how the deck has been stacked against workers who recognize that they have way less power, if at all, if any power by themselves and they would have way more power in a union, um, you know, they 
these people aren't stupid, right? The people in power aren't stupid. They're doing everything they can um, to kind of make sure that like they see the writing on the wall, I guess, is everything that we were talking about before the break. Right. They see these things happening in real time, too. They know that, like, historically, this has led to, like, you know, militant labor action. It's even led to revolutions. And so what they are trying to do is essentially throw as many landmines and and barbed wire fences and pitfalls in our way so that when workers try to get organized, when workers try to defend themselves, right, they're going to find themselves, um, you know, fired for reasons they didn't realize they could be fired for um you know they're going to be um their their union elections are going to be disqualified the scope of it is really kind of hard to sum up in a podcast here and i would just point people to all the amazing labor journalists out there who have been trying to document this um and we we share a lot of their work on on working people but yeah i mean it speaks to you know like i was saying before there is a, a lot of hope I think in the kind of raised political consciousness, the raised um, kind of demand for action that we've been seeing, uh, especially this summer, um, especially from, you know, the rank and file. And, you know, like there there there's an uphill battle to fight both within um, kind of union structures that need to be refashioned or that need to be populated with um, new blood, right? Um, but also, and especially, you know, in the broader kind of legal and, and political landscape that working people are, you know, we're fighting with one hand tied behind our back against the, you know, corporations who are paying the lawmakers to stack the deck in their favor. When speaking about working class and working people in the United States, there is oftentimes, I think, uh, implicit or maybe even an explicit sort of bias or, uh, you know, element of white supremacy involved in the way that we think about what it means to be a worker, what it means to be working class. I mean, I think that there is this sort of stereotype, the image in the mind's eye, as Walter Lippmann would have said, of the worker as being a white man in the Midwest, you know, and the fact of the matter is that's not what the working class looks like on the, on, you know, on the grand scale in terms of its majority. The majority of the working class is not white. The majority of the working class certainly doesn't fit into that preconceived notion. And it's certainly doesn't fit into the uh, narratives that were spun around Donald Trump's support in 2016. And the reason I bring up all of this is to point out that when we're talking about unions and talking about labor, it can't be and shouldn't be divorced from the social issues that are really, uh, you know, at the at the forefront today. And so that really leads me to talking about what I see a being, at least at this point, a tremendous failure on the part of organized labor in this country to really come and show solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. This was a moment, an opportunity, I think, for labor to really assert itself, reassert itself in this highly charged, politically charged and socially charged moment, and they failed to do that. And so I want to ask you a little bit, not just about why they may have failed to do that, because I think we probably already know that, but about what kind of an opportunity that has that, that's been missed and what kind of an opportunity that represents and what it might mean for the future of the working class? So I think, yeah, I think this is a really great question. And, you know, I guess I would, I would point uh, listeners to the kind of season finale that we, we ended this, this past season of working people on. 
which is a really, really great episode, an all-timer of an episode where I spoke with um, Kim Kelly and Halima Alaude of No Cop Unions, the the um, kind of group within the AFL-CIO that is pushing for the, you know, the, the union to the AFL-CIO to, to get cop unions out um, of their federation. Um, and Julia Wallace of SEIU, no, um, SEIU dropped the cops, right? Another, uh, kind of rank and file group within, uh, the SEIU that is pushing for, for similar things. And I think that they laid out in, uh, you know, far more eloquent terms than, than I could, you know, like why they are so adamant, uh, why they and their, you know, uh, rank and file, um, uh, siblings, union siblings are trying so hard to kind of push for this movement to get cops out of the labor movement because they, you know, they, they, they just, they understand at such a kind of, um, kind of basic level, right? Like how necessarily intertwined, right? An institution like the police is to, um, kind of larger historical systems of, uh, capitalism and white supremacy that have, um, you know, beaten down the working class and that have, you know, made a specific target, right? Of, you know, Black people, indigenous people, um, people with disabilities, right? Queer folks, right? You know, like this, these systems that we live with, right? They have winners and losers. They are set up that way, right? And, you know, the, the, the people on the losing end of these systems, right? That's not by accident, right? The, and I think that that's one really perhaps exciting thing about um, kind of the, the energy within the labor movement right now. Right. Is that you are seeing um, a lot of folks who are making kind of a very concerted push, right, a very public push to tie the cause of organized labor to kind of these larger social issues. Right. And that's that's not something that just exists within the pandemic. Right. There there are, um, you know, kind of great instances in the past decade of unions like the Chicago Teachers Union, um, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, uh, who went on strike two years ago, um, you know, who were incorporating kind of this tactic of bargaining for the common good. Um, and, you know, I think that people should check out um, the organization bargaining for the common good. They should check out uh, the writing of folks like Sarah Jaffe, Michelle Chen, who have talked about bargaining for the common good. Um, but, you know, essentially what you know, those unions, you know, were doing was they were using the power of organized labor to push for social change, right? Social, political, and economic change. And they were demonstrating very clearly how um, those issues were connected, right? Because I think part of my answer to your question is that, you know, there are a lot of reasons why uh, unions, you know, and, and the labor movement has gone the way that it has, right? A lot of ways that from the outside, the labor movement has just been bashed, you know, like, uh, continuously, um, stripped of its power. Um, you know, we can go all the way back to, to Reagan and the Petco strike. We can go even farther back than that. There are also plenty of internal reasons, right. And structural reasons that explain at least in part, how kind of, um, unions essentially mimic the sort of like top down corporate hierarchical hierarchical systems um, of the businesses that, you know, like they were supposed to be bargaining with 
and you ended up with um, kind of upper level officials who had lost their connection to the rank and file or who had lost their allegiance to the rank and file. Um, there, again, it depends on the union, depends on um, what time period you want to focus on, but it's a very complex picture. And I would really urge people to learn as much about it as they possibly can, because I think it tells you a lot about this country and it, and it gives you a lot of information that you need uh, to build kind of a more robust labor movement move, uh, moving forward. But, um, you know, one aspect of that that I think is, is really important, right, is that unions um, over the decades kind of narrowed the focus of their demands and their concerns, right? And this isn't, this isn't just on them, right? There, there are plenty of legal precedents in place that tell workers what they can and can't bargain for, right? And how they can and can't bargain for them, right? Or, or strike for them, right? There are a lot of limitations that have been put in place again, by capitalists who pay lawmakers to stack the deck in their favor because they know that, you know, if work if workers went on sympathy strikes, right, if workers kind of were really able to express the full breadth of their power, capitalists would be fucked. Um, but, you know, a lot of those kind of um, impediments have been put in place to prevent that. And one kind of corollary of that is that, you know, you, you end up with uh, a lot of unions kind of narrowing the scope of their bargaining concerns to just keeping operations in the United States, um, perhaps kind of getting a pay bump, you know, like every uh, every couple years um, at the expense of losing long term benefits. Right. There's been a lot of labor has been in a defensive posture for a long time, I guess is how I would put it. Right. And, and that defensive posture, you know, within the limits of that defensive posture, unions have been um, kind of largely focused on kind of the immediate tangible concerns on the job that they can uh, bargain with management over uh, for the good of their members. What we're seeing today is a much larger kind of swell of energy and and uh, movement to connect kind of the concerns and needs of working people on the job to the concerns and needs of society writ large, right? That's what I think bargaining for the common good, you know, the principle of it is really kind of getting at, right? Where Chicago teachers can say, our working, our students' learning conditions are, or how do they put it? Our working conditions are students' learning conditions, right? So like, you know, and vice versa, right? Like if our students are homeless, they're not going to learn, right? If, you know, like our teachers um, can't get by and are, are taking money out of their own pocket to buy supplies, right? You know, that's going to impact their ability to teach, right? No, none of us exist on an island. None of us live in a vacuum, right? All of these kind of broader societal forces kind of compound and intersect with our lives in in kind of critical ways that labor is especially kind of positioned to address if it wants to and if it listens to uh, these rank and file actors, these great kind of leaders even like, uh, you know, I, had a, I did a great interview with Cooper Carraway, who, shout out to Cooper, I think was just kind of inducted as president of the Labor Federation in South Dakota. Uh, Cooper is a great example of, you know, like a young, um, you know, labor leader who is really trying to kind of stir the rank and file and push the labor movement in a new direction that understands 
the intertwined nature of labor and capitalism and white supremacy and uh, patriarchy and all that stuff, right? And so I think that, um, again, there have been a lot of impediments that have been put in our way to to do this type of valuable work. But I think the fact that people are finding creative ways to do it anyway and to raise the issues um, in the public light, I think is really giving people kind of a new way of understanding what organized labor is uh, and what it can be. And I guess to, to maybe circle back to the, the, the um, kind of episode that we did on the rank and file push to get uh, cops out of the labor movement, right? That's a perfect example, right? Because, <clears throat> you know, I think you, you were asking about, you know, all the social unrest we've been seeing. You were asking about the class war and you were asking about, you know, like how, like what labor's role is in all of that, right? You know, this summer we have seen unprecedented um, kind of waves of protests throughout, you know, every state in this country and beyond, right? This this was a movement that spread, you know, throughout the world um, because, you know, like the kind of um, racist police state that we live with is mirrored in the imperialist um, kind of project that we uh, have brought to the rest of the world and used to kind of enforce uh, our own kind of economic and political interests, right? And, you know, I think that um, the issue of kind of the police has been a particularly galvanizing one, not just because we can all see and have experienced the ways that, you know, police and police unions have given themselves kind of complete license to treat us like cockroaches, um, to kill us with impunity, um, to, you know, torture, like I said, black, brown, indigenous, queer um, uh, folks, folks with disabilities, and just the working class in general. Right. They have been systematically given that ability. And that's not an accident. Right. Because the function of the police and this is something that labor advocates have been really pointing out, because when people say, but aren't cops workers, people will say no, because cops are performing the they are the enforcement arm of capital. They are the enforcement arm of the bosses. Right. When we were going on strike, when we back in the day were trying to demand our rights to unionize in the first place and collectively bargain, who were the ones beating us over the head with clubs? Right. It was like other workers don't do that. It's the cops. Right. And that's because the cops, like I said, are the attack dog of um, the capitalist class. They are there to protect property and profits uh, over people. And it's not an accident that as the kind of um, social safety net and as kind of like all the other necessary functions for like a healthy society have been desiccated and stripped away by the people in power, what we've replaced that with, what we've replaced kind of any semblance of a social welfare system, right? Any semblance of a, of a public health care system, we have replaced that with police. And what the police do is they don't solve the problem. They just um, they take it out of sight. Right. You know, they go to, you know, areas that are in great economic need and they over police people so that they can shuttle them primarily black and brown black and brown people into prisons so that you know the rest of us just don't see how massively sick this kind of societal arrangement is 
right? That is that is the function of the this entire kind of carceral state. I think I made the point on, you know, when I went on another show earlier in the summer that I said, you know, Marx, Karl Marx kind of famously said that religion was the opiate of the masses. But I've been I've been really wondering like how much you could say that police are the opiate of society, right? Because what our politicians use police forces for, right, is to essentially numb the open festering wounds of our that our political economy has created, right? The poverty, the desperation, right? The the kind of institutional and systemic kind of uh, racism and other forms of um, discrimination and dehumanization, right? We, we, we treat that pain not by kind of providing communities with the sort of economic opportunities and basic kind of health care and social services that they need to live kind of the, the comfortable, dignified lives that every human being deserves. But instead, we've sent, again, this opiate force of the police to either kill the um, products of that um, social desiccation or to suppress it, arrest it, and shuttle it into prisons where it can be forgotten, right? That is that is how, like, the police have functioned as a form of pain management, right, in this kind of deeply broken system. And again, organized labor is, is really, you know, people within the labor movement are really kind of making the case that we need to get cops out of the labor movement because this function that they serve and the people that they are serving while doing it right, is anathema to what organized labor is all about. My final question to you, and it really has to do with this phrase that we hear over and over again nowadays, that we're living through unprecedented times. Boy, the times are unprecedented. Have you seen how lacking in precedent these times are? Man, I miss Uh, the precedented times. Uh, those precedented times are a bygone era. But now that we live in these unprecedented times, we have to ask ourselves whether the terminology that we use is still appropriate, whether our understanding of what these things mean, you know, to not to get too uh, bart about it, you know, the signs and the signifiers and what these things actually represent in 2020. And, you know, this is a long-winded way of getting to my real question here for you, and it's the final question for you. What does it mean to be working class in this era? What does it mean to be a worker in this sort of neoliberal hellscape that we now inhabit? Uh, Is the understanding of a worker that we have had traditionally, is that still relevant and applicable today? Or do we need to redefine what worker and working class means? So I think I think this is a great question and probably one that we could do, you know, a whole episode uh, in itself on. Right. And, and you know, it is it is one that um, kind of I've wrestled with throughout the show. Right. Because I remember even back in season one of working people. Right. I made a very conscious decision not to define what the working class was. Right. Or what I thought the working class was what I wanted to happen was for that um kind of category that that i wanted that word um that term sorry the the term working class 
to gain its meaning through the stories that people were hearing on the podcast, right? Through the stories of working people themselves, right? Because I think that you're right. Like there, you know, there's, there, there's just so many ways that, um, you know, we have been kind of like historically encouraged or conditioned to think of the working class in very limited terms. And I think especially in the United States, we should be very self-critical about that um, because, you know, we need to recognize that the ruling classes have had a, a continual interest, right, in kind of distorting our understanding of who the working class was, right, or is, right? You know, the, 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 the entire kind of dream of uh, the American dream, as it were, right, depends on this kind of belief that you can lift yourself out of kind of the, the disaffected uh, and disempowered classes, right? And that, that has, that is baked into um, kind of our history and our society and our culture over centuries, right? This desire to not be associated with the working class, right? This desire to always see ourselves, you know, I think um, as the perhaps apocryphal quote, that's normally attributed to, I think Steinbeck, right. Is that Americans only, you know, they don't see themselves as working class. They only see themselves as temporary and temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Right. Um, again, I, I, I don't think that that is the, the source of the quote, but, um, you know, I think that it does speak to something that people kind of inherently, uh, recognize, right. Which is that for the longest time, uh, especially, like I said, especially like in, um, a, a big chunk of our lifetimes, right? You know, there was a, there's been a huge stigma of um, kind of being associated with the working class, right? And um, that's the, the terms for that, the terms defining that are very opaque, right? You know, but people just kind of understood that it was something that they didn't want to be, right? It's always what the other guy has, right? But I think that our sense of like what that actually means you know, we don't really have kind of a shared definition of what the working class is. But my whole point in kind of going on that long tangent is that as we try to discuss perhaps defining the working class moving forward or perhaps kind of coming up with different terminology to kind of represent what, you know, has gone by other names in the past, you know, whether it be the proletariat, right, or, or something else, right? The I think that we need to recognize that um, the things that shape our past definitions of these things, right, have been uh, deliberately and effectively tainted by forces and people who do not have our best interests in mind. So that's something that I, I really just want kind of people who are interested in this stuff to kind of keep in mind. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, you raise another uh, really great point. Right. You know, about how, you know, even if we try to kind of take some sort of, um, you know, stricter definitions of the working class, whether that be like earning uh, below a certain uh, kind of pay scale, uh, not having a college degree, you know, these sorts of these sorts of kind of uh, definitional qualities that that a lot of surveys and studies kind of use just to kind of get accurate data and stuff like that, that. Um, you know, that, that, that kind of paints a very, um, 
you know, limited picture, right, of of people who, you know, are still living under conditions that we would call working class conditions, right, or people who are are much more intimately connected to the experience of um, being a worker and not an owner, right, being a worker and not a boss, right, you know, they're, 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 there's a lot of fluidity there. And, um, you know, as the workforce itself has changed, as the economy has changed, as we moved away from uh, kind of being a manufacturing powerhouse to a largely kind of service-based economy to then kind of like uh, the age of finance capital, right? There, that, that, do, that has brought in, yeah, kind of a lot of um, kind of major shifts in the composition of people who experience, you know, like working classness, however we define that. And as you said, you know, if we if we kind of cast a wide net right now, we would see that, you know, the majority of the working class is, you know, are women. The the majority are, you know, non-white people. There are um, you know, immigrants, there are um just so many people working in so many different industries, whether they be service, whether that be agriculture, um, and whether those agricultural workers are undocumented or here on special visas or citizens, right? Whether they're, they are kind of working in plants and factories, whether they're working in service jobs, um, or, you know, like whether they're working in um, kind of the lower echelons of kind of white collar industries and are still, you know, they may have a college degree, but they still might be making like, you know, 25K a year um, and barely able to kind of pay their rent. Right. And so I think, um, you know, and that doesn't even get to the point that I was making earlier. Right. Which is that um, the experience of being a proletarian, right, the experience of being the have nots, right, or the 99 percent. This is what I mean is like, you know, we can try to kind of I think it's worthwhile to explore other ways that we could signify what we normally, you know, kind of signify with the term working class. And there are a lot of like historical precedents we can look to and we can see how effective they were. But I guess in honor of our fallen comrade, David Graeber, I thought it'd be good to kind of bring up the, the 99% as well. Um, you know, the, the question of what it means to be in that proletarian class of the have-nots, of the non-owners, of the rentiers, right? You know, of the people who have to sell their, their labor power, um, you know, not the people who, you know, own the means of production, you know, that that does, to your point um, and to the point that I was making earlier in this episode, right, it doesn't quite account for how we are put in that proletarian position um, through avenues that don't just depend on like our productive labor, right, on the labor that we do when we go to, into work, punch the clock, do some sort of task, punch out and go home. Right. There are so many other ways that this kind of capitalist hellscape makes money off of us. Right. There's so many other ways that it exploits us, that it keeps us disempowered, that it shores up, you know, like the power of the few at the expense of the many. And that, too, is a component in um, what it means to be in this class. Right. What it means to be in um, the 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 non-bourgeoisie, right? You know, 
I think there are obviously different levels, um, you know, within those populations, um, within cities, within towns and different parts of the country. Right. There are people who are maybe making 40K a year. There are people who are making less than 20K a year. Right. You know, like then their qualities of life are are different. But I do think that it is worthwhile to explore possibilities of um, defining the working class or defining um, whatever it is that we are going to use to kind of bring working people and the disaffected and the downtrodden um, and class traders together under a single banner, under a common cause um, and a common cause that is directed at kind of taking back what has been stolen from us and what is rightfully ours. I think that it's worthwhile to kind of um, in, in exploring those possibilities to think about um, working classness as a way of experiencing the world. Like I said, a way of experiencing the world as not something of your making, not something that you have a hand in making, but something that you are permitted to occupy if you can make enough money, right? If you can get enough status, right? If you can be the right type of person, then you can live here. If not, you know, then it might as well be like, you know, that the the comics or the movie Judge Dredd, where you're just kicked out into kind of this desert wasteland outside of society. Right. That's I mean, that's more or less what we're already doing. Right. With with the unhoused and we're on the verge of a massive, um, you know, eviction crisis that basically amounts to a real day, you know, a present day version of like that Judge Dredd scenario, which is which is pretty fucking terrifying. But, you know, I think that, um, you know, that experience of um, being a renter on this in this world, right, you know, like not being um, not having the right to exist, not having the freedom to exist as you wish and as you should be able to. Right. Those are also aspects of our lives that contribute to um, us being in this group of people and not in the small group of the powerful, right? Not being part of the bourgeoisie, not being part of the 1%. And that doesn't just, you know, that doesn't all come down to what type of job we do and how much we make, right? It also comes down to, you know, like whether or not we can afford our health care, right? Whether or not um, we live in an area where the water is drinkable, Right. I mean, there there again, there's so many other aspects of our lives that um, compound that sense of, for lack of a better term, like working classness or proletarianness that we need to speak to. And I hope that working people, at least my show, you know, at least contribute something to that effort, because that's really the guiding aim of it, as I said back in the beginning of this of this conversation, right, is that I really try to show the humanity uh, of us and our fellow workers, right? I really try to kind of, you know, give people space to talk about their lives and to remind themselves and listeners that, you know, they're they're human beings. And and as human beings, we deserve better than this. Um, but as a proletarian class, the thing that unites us is, you know, like being denied uh, actively and systematically the capacity to remake the world 
um, in a more just fashion. And so then the only thing left for the worker is to demand that the worker get what the worker deserves. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? We'll have to leave it there. Maximilian Alvarez, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Working People is the podcast on Twitter at WorkingPod. Maximilian's on Twitter at Maximilian underscore ALV. Find all his work in all of those different publications and the website activeforgetting.com. Maximilian, thanks for coming on Counterpunch and talking to us. Thanks for having me on, brother. Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support. Do check out Counterpunch Plus. Hope you enjoy it. We will talk again next week.